Welcome everybody. Today we're in Ezekiel chapter 3 verses 20 and 21. So what we do is we have a memory verse which we're learning. Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 26 and 27. So, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So Father, help us to be humble and to listen to you this morning to receive from your word and may your Holy Spirit teach us and lead us into truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going through the book of Ezekiel, and the start of the book of Ezekiel is basically setting out who God is. In chapter 1, there's this amazing vision of this massive chariot with Jesus on top. This awesome vision, and Ezekiel gets the heavenly mindset. He goes, oh, this is who God is, and he's greater than anything else on the earth. He is in control. Then it goes on, and he gets his calling to be... The watchman. The watchman is someone who keeps a lookout and warns people of coming danger. And we've been through the message, and basically it's pretty blunt. It's repent or die. And that's basically what it is. You know, sin has separated us from God, and if we don't deal with that problem, then we will die in our sins. And that's what it means when it says die in your sins. So last week... We looked at our responsibility as believers, as ambassadors for Christ. We went to the New Testament and looked at that, what it means to be an ambassador for Christ. And this is really important because you may not realize it, but there's a war going on, and it's not in Ukraine. That's a tiny war compared to this war. This is a war for souls. It's a war for the souls and hearts of men. And... We are Christ's ambassadors, and God wants to use us to help him reconcile people back to himself. That's the message in the book of Ezekiel, and that's what we're going to learn about more and more. So last week we talked about four main things. The first one was there will be false prophets and false teachers, and we understood, we discovered that God allows false teachers because people will choose not to believe the truth and they'll believe a lie instead. So that was an important message. So if you want to look at that, you can grab the notes from last week and listen to it on the podcast or website. The whole thing about false prophets, I don't have time to go into it now, but it's really important and why they're there. Secondly, God will judge the false prophets and the false teachers. And Christ said in Matthew 18 verse 7, Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. And goes into point three, Bible teachers have a stricter judgment than others because with greater privilege comes greater responsibility. And number four, all believers have responsibility as ambassadors of Christ. And what that is, is we went through and looked up several passages and we have a responsibility to be in the word, to know the word and to be able to share the gospel, to give a reason for the hope that is within you. And 2 Timothy to be equipped. So we will be rewarded for our faithfulness 
and our fruitfulness at the BMC judgment. So that's what we did last week. So this week, what we're going to cover is believers are only responsible to warn people and not for their decision. So that should be a very freeing message or part of the message. And then believers also have a responsibility to warn other believers. So we've talked about warning unbelievers. Now today we're talking about believers as well. And this is what happens inside a body of Christ. Trials test our faith. How we finish the race is more important than how we started. How we finish the race is more important than how we started. A believer can go off the track and not finish well. They can lose their reward. And lastly, does going to church or being religious make me a Christian? And this is the danger of false conversion, false converts. So let's jump in. Let's read Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. This is like jam-packed with all these things. So verse 20, again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die, because you did not give him warning. He shall die in his sin, and his righteousness, which he has done, shall not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if he warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning. Also you will have delivered your soul. So I'm just going to focus on that last section there, the last sentence. Also, you will have delivered your soul. So imagine there's a city and there's a watchman, like a guard posted on the wall. If the people inside the city refuse to listen to the watchman blowing the trumpet, which warned them of the invading enemy, it's not the fault of the watchman, is it? He's done his job. He's been faithful to warn them. It hurts him to see them die or be captured, but he's not responsible for their deaths. Now, this applies to the spiritual as well. We talk for God. We speak for God. When we share the gospel, we speak for God. We are his mouthpiece. We're not prophets. I'm not saying we're all prophets. But when we share the gospel, when we share the truth with other believers and with unbelievers as well, God is using us to encourage and to share the truth with those around us. Now, how much or how long do we need to share the word with people? Just once? Is that enough? No, it's continuously. All right. So Ezekiel, Jeremiah in this case as well, they were sharing the gospel. They were sharing this message that God gave them for decades. So day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and then decade after decade. Now, how many people actually responded to their message? Not many at all. Not many at all. And that's why God gives him this encouragement that, hey, look, it's not your problem. There was no fruit from their ministry outwardly. Now, what's the application for us? Well, we, like they, can rest easy with a clear conscience that we have done all we could to love people around us by warning them of the consequences of sin. And Jesus describes his and our responsibility as God's ambassadors clearly in John 15, 18-22. And he also reveals the reason why people reject the gospel message. And the reason is they hate God. John 15, 18-22 from the NLT. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. 
This is Jesus talking. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And, this is the important bit here, and if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They will do all this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. Who's that? It's the Father, right? They've rejected the Father. If you reject the Son, you've also rejected the Father. They would not be guilty if I had not come and spoken to them, but now they have no excuse for their sin. This sounds like Ezekiel, doesn't it, what we just read? I've warned them, but now they have no excuse. Jesus says, I've done my job. The rest is in their hands. Jesus was also acting as a watchman, warning the people of their sin. So, what was Jesus' overall message? John 7, 7. The world cannot hate you, Jesus speaking to his brothers, his unbelieving brothers at that time, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. Jesus was convicting people of their sin. They liked Jesus. They liked the miracles. They liked all the things he did, his character, his personality. But they didn't like his message because he spoke about their sin, which was separating them from God and caused them to go to hell. And Jesus loved them too much not to speak about those things. So the message has been the same all through the Bible. So let's go back to verse 20. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die, because you did not give him warning, he shall die in his sin. And his righteousness, which he has done, shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning. Also you will have delivered your soul. So, Verse 21, it says, just focusing on this phrase here, this sentence, Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin. So, apply this to the New Testament. We're talking about believers now. It's the believer's responsibility to encourage each other in our walk with God and also to turn each other back to God when we sin. So, a few verses here. James 5, 19 to 20. Brethren, if anyone a believer, that is, among you, wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Galatians 6.1 Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, that is, you who are mature, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So, Humility. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day of Jesus' return approaching. So I put that in there, of Jesus' return. Now, as ambassadors, we are not only responsible to reach the lost, but also to encourage those who are already saved to continue walking the Christian walk. 
Now, moving on to another key concept in these two verses, trials test our faith. So it says in verse 20, and I lay a stumbling block before him. Now, if you read that and you don't compare it to the rest of the Bible, you might get the wrong idea that God is deliberately trying to mess you up and trip you up and cause you to fall. But that's not what it is. And so when you read the Bible, you have to use the Bible to interpret the Bible. So let's do that. So the idea here is not that God is purposely trying to trip us up and get us to fail. In James 1 verse 2, we read that trials are a test of our faith. So God allows things to happen to us so that we can see if we are walking in fellowship with God, if we are being led or empowered by the Holy Spirit or not. And we're not talking about signs and wonders here. We're talking about obedience, about loving people, about being forgiving and humble, the fruit of the Spirit. If we are, we will pass the test. If we are walking with God, we will pass the test. If we're in fellowship. But if, we're not, if we aren't in fellowship, then we won't. Now, why is it so hard to know the difference? Because our hearts are deceitful. Jeremiah 17.9 Our hearts are desperately wicked and we cannot know them. Only God knows our heart. He searches the heart. And so what God does is he puts trials on our path and they help us like an x-ray. They help us to know what's going on on the inside. So what is my true or hidden motive? Where are my affections at at the moment? Are they focused on God or are they focused on the world and myself? And so the trials, they help us to answer a key question. Am I being led by the Holy Spirit or by sinful human nature? Another way of saying this, have I submitted to or chosen to be led by the Holy Spirit or my sinful human nature? So I'm going to read a section from Galatians and Romans, which will help explain this. And remember, the purpose of this is to reveal why God puts trials in our path. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives, then you won't be doing what the sinful nature craves. It's Galatians 5, 16 to 25. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. So this is the evidence of what you're doing, right? This is why God sends these trials. When the trial comes and these things come out of you, guess what you're doing? You're walking according to your sinful nature. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, that's drugs, things like that. Hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if that's your way of life, you've never stopped doing that, never repented, then I'm not a believer. But as a Christian, we can go back into those things. doesn't mean you lost your salvation, but you can go back into those kinds of sins. I'll talk more about that later. 
And because we've taken our eyes off God and now our sinful nature is again controlling us. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucify them there. What that means is our sinful nature has lost its power over us. We have a free choice now to submit to the Spirit or submit to our sinful nature. It's not that we have to, it's that we choose to. Since we're living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Isn't that interesting? Every part of our lives. Sometimes we can be obedient in some parts, but not in others. Romans 8, 5 and 6. Those who are dominated by their sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. Now watch this in verse 6. It's got so letting and but letting, yeah? So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. You see the choice? Every day, every decision we make, am I going to do what God wants or what I want? So when the trial happens, there's two ways we respond to it. It's either with rejoicing or with repentance. You go, oh no. I see that I was walking in my flesh and I understand why I failed this trial. I wasn't reading my Bible. you know. I wasn't walking with the Lord or I had these other thoughts, these other priorities ahead of God and now this is the evidence, this is the result of me turning away from God. So when we pass the trial, we can rejoice in our abiding and intimate fellowship with God because we are walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, being controlled and empowered by the Spirit and thus walk in obedience to God's will and we experience that joy that Jesus talks about of abiding in Christ. If you obey me, you will be full of joy. But when we fail, and we all do sometimes, the trial reveals that we've been living by or following the desires of our sinful nature. So if we end up sinning in any of those ways we just read, if we've been sowing to our flesh, then we'll reap corruption, decay, and death. Now, important point here is in italics there. Failing the trial is almost always the fruit or consequence of poor prior choices. So the choices we make now will affect us down the track, for good or for bad. Galatians 6 verses 7 to 8. Do not be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. That is the law of reaping and sowing. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So basically, how do we draw near? We have to die to self. So I can't do this, but God can. I give those desires up, those things I love, those things I get pleasure from, those thoughts, those activities, those TV programs, whatever it might be, I choose to give them up. I die to self. That's what true repentance is all about. So, it's really important we understand that if we are lazy or complacent and we're not prioritizing our relationship with God over 
everything else, then things can still go well for a while. On the outside, we can hold it together. People can think we're doing quite well. But when the trial hits, what's going to happen? It's going to reveal the inner condition of our heart, the fact that we're not walking with God, that he is not number one in our lives. And so what we do is we get back to the root of this problem, which is sin. Okay, God is not number one. Something else is. And we realize that our fellowship with God is broken and we need to repent of the root cause of that sin. I want to use Peter as an example. Now, what he did was he denied Christ, yeah? Jesus says, you're going to deny me. And Peter says, what? No way. I'll die for you. <laughs> we all say the same thing, you know. Someone might say, oh, you might commit that sin. No, 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 never. I'll never do that. I love God too much, you know. But guess what? What was Peter relying on? Christ or himself? Himself, yeah. And so his sin was independence of God. He wasn't submitted to God. He wasn't relying on God. And his denying the Savior, his failing that test, was the fruit or consequence of his already broken fellowship with God. Okay, remember, we don't lose our salvation, but we do lose fellowship when we sin. So Peter's trial revealed the condition of his heart, and Peter then repented of his sin, and he learned the hard way to depend on God, to stop being independent and thinking, well, I think I can do it, I feel I can do it, but no, you can't. It's only through God's strength that we can get God's will done. Now, we move on to the next section, and there's a sentence in verse 21, and it says, His righteousness, which he has done, shall not be remembered. Now, this is pretty sobering. It's pretty serious. His righteousness, which he has done, shall not be remembered. So, again, how we finish the race is more important than how we started. Some of us might not have started well, and I didn't, my Christian walk. But we can all finish well if we choose to. So don't look behind, look ahead. There's many righteous men and women who have failed to finish well. These people are saved, they haven't lost their salvation. But because they have turned away from God, backslidden, compromised, whatever you want to call it, the real good that they have done should not be remembered. And a quote from David Guzik. It says, This is the tragic price paid by many righteous men and women who fail to finish well. The real good they have done shall not be remembered. One sin or a short season of sin can easily wipe out an otherwise good reputation. So you, you might have heard of some ministries, Christian ministries, which have been disgraced because of sin. So I'm just going to give one example. Ravi Zacharias, and you know he's passed away now. But I looked at him up on Wikipedia, and this is what it said. Ravi Zacharias was an Indian-born, Canadian-American Christian, evangelical minister and apologist who founded Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, or RZIM. He was involved in Christian apologetics for a period spanning more than 40 years. Zacharias was the author of more than 30 books on Christianity. Now, I used to listen to Ravi Zacharias. I was encouraged by his speaking and his wisdom. 
his apologetics. But you go on in Wikipedia and it says this. On the 11th of February 2021, RZIM released the full results of its investigation. This is after he had passed away. Concluding that there was credible evidence that Zacharias had engaged in sexual misconduct. Accordingly, it was found that Zacharias solicited and received sexually explicit photos from more than 200 women who were in their early 20s until a few months before his death in 2020. According to investigators, Zacharias also used thousands of dollars of ministry funds which had been dedicated to a humanitarian effort to pay for massage therapists and it goes on and gets worse. So I'm assuming Ravi Zacharias was saved and he didn't lose his salvation. He just backslid. He just turned away from the Lord. You know, He got caught up in sin and he didn't repent and made some bad choices. And we can all do that. But he did a lot of damage to the church. His reputation is shot. And as we're going to read in the scriptures, I think his reward is gone too. It's pretty serious. So we're going to look at some scriptures to talk about what happens to a reward when you don't finish well. So the Apostle Paul gives us a stern warning about finishing well so that we are not disqualified from service and we don't lose our reward. So 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27. And this is referring to the, like the Olympic Games, sports and things like that. Don't you realize that in a race everyone runs, but only one person gets a prize, so run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing or beating the air. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. And listen to this. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. He's keeping his sinful nature, his body, in check. So basically, he's not being disqualified from his salvation. He's being disqualified from his reward and the ministry. So we're going to have a quick look at 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. And I'm going to read it again from the New King James Version. So do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Okay, that's the key there. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate or self-controlled in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. That is eternal. Perishable means temporary. Imperishable means eternal. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. Again, referring to the Olympic Games, the different sports they had there. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. So, I run, I fight, it's the Olympic Games. I didn't know, but they actually had the Isthmian Games in Corinth, and this is where Paul was writing to, or who Paul was writing to, the believers in Corinth. The Isthmian Games were second to the Olympic Games, which are held in Athens. Now, run in such a way that you may obtain it. And I'll ask you a question here. Have you ever seen a half-hearted athlete win a race? Someone who puts in a half-hearted effort. 
you know, how commentators on the TV said, well, this guy only trained half as much as anyone else. You know, they didn't eat right. They didn't, you know, do what the coach said and all that. No. The people who win the races are dedicated. So, for example, have you ever seen a half-hearted athlete win an Olympic race? Like if they were slacking their training, and we can apply this to us, a lack of morning devotions, prayer, Bible study, fellowship, evangelism, things like that. Someone who didn't watch what they ate. Athletes, they have to be very careful about their diet. What about our diet? Apply it to us. A poor spiritual diet. We can be given over to worldly foods, you know, TV, phone, games, drugs, drinking, family, work, pleasure, sport, anything that's more important than God. And sometimes we don't look after ourselves. We don't get enough sleep. Now, what do you like in the morning when you haven't had enough sleep? I'm really groggy. You know, you don't function very well. So an athlete will make sure they get to bed on time and they'll get enough sleep. And so they wake up and they're good to go. They've got a clear mind. And so we need to make sure that we're using our time wisely. And I just want to point out that what is obvious for winning a physical race should also be obvious for winning the spiritual race. We can't expect to win our eternal race, that is to receive our full reward, if we are not willing to put in the effort and be willing to sacrifice everything else like an Olympic athlete willingly does for their temporary prize. So I'll read that again. We can't expect to win our eternal race, receive a full reward, if we are not willing to put in the effort and be willing to sacrifice everything else like an Olympic athlete willingly does for their temporary race. That's the whole point that Paul is making. So why is it that it seems there's so many unbelievers who are so deeply committed to their causes, like, you know, look at what's going on now with abortion in America, you know, evolution in universities and people committed to their careers, different forms of sin, sport, money, fame, music, whatever it is, they are willing to make such huge sacrifices for so little gain. But, and I don't want to characterize anyone here, but I've looked around and sometimes in my own life, there's many Christians who are not willing to sacrifice for a calling so high, a love so deep, and a reward so great that we can't even begin to understand how wonderful it would be. We have so much more to sacrifice for, yet we tend to sacrifice less. 1 Corinthians 2.9 But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So if we want to receive our full reward, what do you do? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. A couple of quotes from David Guzik when it says, I discipline my body. He says, discipline is a weak translation. The ancient Greek word means to strike under the eye, to give a black eye. Paul didn't want his body to lord it over his entire being. So we don't want our human physical desires to rule us. We want to rule them. And bring it into subjection. He says, this literally means to lead about as a slave. Paul made sure that his body was a servant and that his inner man was the master. The desires of his body were not going to rule over his entire self. If you look around the world, or the unbelievers, what are they ruled by? What they eat, what they drink, what they watch, all that kind of stuff, yeah? 
their bodily appetites, their bodily desires are ruling their lives and they're seeking to maximize how much pleasure they have. That's the opposite to what it should be as a Christian. Now who is able to rule over our fleshly appetites and desires? Can we do it ourselves? <laughs> no, it's only the Holy Spirit. It's only the Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit is strong enough to rule over our body appetites and desires. And that's why it says in Galatians 5.16, which you read just before, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives, then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. Now some people get worried when they read this word disqualified. And there's a quote from Adam Clark to help clarify this. It signifies such a person as the judges of the games reject as not as having deserved the prize. So this disqualification in context is not deserving of the prize. So Paul himself might be rejected by the great judge. And to prevent this, he ran, he contended, he denied himself and brought his body into subjection to his spirit and had his spirit governed by the spirit of God. So I just want to emphasize, the disqualification does not refer to you losing your salvation, but rather a loss of reward. Put yourself in context. If you're a Greek athlete, you're not going to lose your citizenship if you get disqualified, if you break one of the rules. Yeah, You're still a citizen of Rome. But you will lose your reward if you don't run according to the rules. Yeah. And just think about Ravi, and we'll come back to, you know, I don't know anything about why he did what he did, but I know that in my own life, I've gone off track sometimes and started to wander off. And 1 Corinthians 10, 12 and 13 has some promises and some warnings. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So if you think you're strong, this is like Peter, remember? The Apostle Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me, Jesus said. Peter said, no way, I can do all things through my own strength. <laughs> That's basically what he said. No way, no way would I ever do that. Would I ever do that? Yeah, of course he did. It says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, again, thinking about how does this backsliding, this compromise start? It starts with your thoughts. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 16. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. If you don't deal with your thoughts, if you don't deal with those wayward thoughts, they will end up killing you. I'm not talking about going to hell. I'm talking about they'll destroy your life. So let's break down James 1, 14 and 16 into the three parts. So the first thing there is thoughts, desires and enticements. No one's going to know if you dwell on those thoughts. But if you do choose to dwell on those thoughts, it will inevitably, eventually give birth to sin, which is the acting out of that desire. 
Our thoughts become our actions, which become our lifestyle, and we end up in bondage to the sin. And this then leads to death, and that's the inevitable and tragic consequence of the sin. We can't get away with it. So I'm going to give you a little analogy here. Our garden at home is a good analogy of someone who doesn't look after their garden. It's full of weeds. But we've tried, and this has happened to us a couple of times, right? The weed analogy. I want to prepare my garden so I can grow tomatoes. So I get rid of all the big weeds, which are easily seen and easy to pull up. But you know the little ones are so hard to pull up, so hard to kill, and they just keep popping up. So you think, ah, look, don't worry about it. These tomato seedlings, they're pretty big. They'll be fine. And so you put the tomato seedlings in the garden, you pull the big ones up, and it looks good. The tomato seedlings are much bigger than the little weeds, which I couldn't be bothered pulling up. I was too lazy. And I think I'm so clever. I saved myself all that work. I got away with it. I didn't have to pull out those pesky little weeds. But what happens? <laughs> the weeds always grow faster, don't they? Yeah. So the little weeds grow into big weeds. And soon I can't see the tomato plants and there are no more tomatoes because they've died. Completely overgrown with weeds and are completely unfruitful. And that's what it's like in our own lives. We see the big sins and we work hard to clean up our act and we have some success in getting rid of some of the obvious sins. An example, if I was a thief who stole money from people and I was about to get into big trouble, I could see where this is heading. I thought, I don't really want to go to jail. And so I work on this problem. I'm fixing this problem. I make myself accountable. I set guidelines on where I can be, where I shouldn't be, and purpose on not being around money so I can't steal it. But I still allow my covetous thoughts to remain about what I'm going to do with money, you know, as well as some thieving habits. And, you know, those pesky thoughts that keep saying, oh, you need money and what could you do with more money and all those things, they're so hard to control. Every time one of those things come into your head, you've got to deal with it, but it's so hard to. No, I can't be bothered. I'm going to dwell on those thoughts. I'm going to enjoy them. Hey, if I can't get pleasure from having money, at least I can think about money. And then there's stealing little things like biscuits and chocolate from home. Well, that doesn't matter. No one's going to know. <laughs> the little weeds, yeah, the thoughts and the little habits that you don't break. So what have I just done? Well, I've just made myself God. I've determined what is right and what is wrong. Satan said to Eve, you can be like God. You can know what is good and what is evil, yeah? So I've determined what level of goodness is acceptable and that's the level I choose to live at. I justify my behavior and thoughts by saying things like, well, I'm so much better than I was before. No one will know about these other little things, these covetous thoughts and minor thefts. These things will be okay. I can live with that. I can control them. And that's what we tell ourselves, right? And what have I done? I've justified my sin. These things are okay for me to do. But am I fully submitted to God? No. Am I being led by the Holy Spirit or my sinful nature? Sinful nature, yeah. Even though I've stopped stealing money, I'm still being led by my sinful nature because I'm not fully submitted. There's been an external change, but not an internal change. There was no real surrender of my will to God. And if I was honest, I would admit that I was only trying to avoid the painful and public consequences of my sin 
of stealing money like going to jail and that would be my true motive for wanting to change. And for that reason, I don't deal with the root issue, my desires. And what's going to happen down the track? I'm going to end up stealing again, right? I haven't dealt with the root cause. I've still got these desires. Thinking about money all the time. I really want it. It's going to build up. Those thoughts will turn into sin, which will cause death, bring death. So when you don't deal with the, the root of this sin issue, all you're doing is prolonging the inevitable. It'll come back, and I've experienced that in my own life. Again, the little weeds, which I was too lazy to pull up, they killed me. They grew into big weeds, and they suffocated my life. What did Jesus say about sin? <laughs> Matthew 5.30 And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, the story of the rich young ruler, Jesus says, go sell all you have and you'll have treasure in heaven, come follow me. And he said, no, thank you. Jesus says, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And the man said, my money. That's basically it. We can apply this verse to us as believers. And so I'm going to rephrase this applying it to believers, all right? So we could say that Jesus says, if something causes you to sin, cut it off, get rid of it completely so you don't lose your reward. You see that? So the sin, as a believer, you won't lose your salvation, but you can lose and you will lose your reward if you let it control you and destroy your life. Now, what does it look like? What does wholehearted obedience look like? We've looked at an example of partial obedience with the wrong motive. What does wholehearted obedience look like? Psalm 119. Joyful are people of integrity that are blameless. Not perfect, but blameless isn't living a blameless life. Who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil, and they walk only in his paths. You have charged us to keep your commandments carefully. Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. So have a think about that. Some of the statements there, verse 3. They do not compromise with evil. Someone who is wholeheartedly seeking the Lord will not compromise. They won't allow, you know, I'll get rid of this, but I won't get rid of these things. No, it's all got to go. Deal drastically with sin. They search for him with all their hearts. And then it says in verse 6, Then I would not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. So if we look in the Word, and we're in the Word, and guess what? Our life matches what the Word says, and there's no shame. We can read it, and we're not going, oh, got to deal with that. So, that's the difference. Now, this made me think about my own life, and there's four different categories of believer based on my own experience and the Bible, I think. So, the cold believer. So, there's cold, lukewarm, self-reliant, and the hot believer. Okay, So, the cold believer is the backslidden believer. They sin willfully even though it is breaking their fellowship with God. 
they are unrepentant and are not even trying to change. So the prodigal son is an example of this. He went away from home and he didn't care about the father until later on when he chose to repent. But until then, he was just doing his own thing without any care in the world. And there's another example. In Corinth, there was a guy who was committing sexual sin. He refused to repent and they had to kick him out of the church. That's a backslidden believer. Someone who doesn't care and who's just fully indulging in their sin as a believer. I've got a question for each of these categories of believer, right? So the cold believer, their question is, how much sin can I enjoy? Let's get into it. Let's get as much as I can. Enjoy it as much as I can. Now, the next category is the lukewarm believer or compromising believer. And this believer wonders, how much sin can I get away with or justify while still appearing Christian to those around me and appeasing my own conscience? You know, I might be saying to myself, I must be pretty good because I don't do this and that like this other person does better than them. But what's happening is I'm in a conundrum. I want to keep doing the sin, but I don't want the consequences of the sin. And so I'm kind of half doing it, half not doing it. I'm not satisfied. Either way, I'm not living a righteous life. I'm not enjoying the sin completely. This is the life of a compromised believer. And King Saul and King Solomon would be good examples. Started well, finished badly. So the question of a compromising believer is, how much sin can I get away with without looking too bad around other people? Now the self-reliant believer, this is like Peter, not fully submitted. They see how sinful they really are. They know what is right, seek to do what is right, but they try to overcome their sin by their own strength. Again, like Peter, when he denied Jesus, they haven't yet come to the realization that I can't, but God can. Still relying on their own strength, resources, and smarts. Now, I know this to be true for myself. There comes a painful moment for all believers when they finally give up trying to live the Christian life on their own strength and finally or more fully surrender to God. And this is called dying to self. That's what Jesus means when he says die to self. And it's only once this happens that we can truly walk by faith. And so the question for the self-reliant Christian is, how can I overcome this sin? Then the last one there is hot. The fully repentant believer, fully submitted to and completely dependent on God and therefore fully enabled by God to deal with the sin. Even the desire for the sin, they're willing to take those thoughts captive and not allow them to take root and therefore turn into sin, the action. In James 4, 7, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And like Jesus in the garden, they pray earnestly for God's will to be done in their lives. Jesus in the garden, he was asking for the strength to say no to doing what he wanted and yes to doing what God wanted. And that takes effort. And that's where true victory starts. It's when you get on your knees and you say, God, please help me with these thoughts, with these desires. I don't want them. You win the battle in prayer. And that's where the full dying of self comes. And like Jesus, he won the battle in Gethsemane. 
because he had fully committed himself, submitted himself to God. And therefore, he can go through that massive trial without wavering. But if he wasn't fully committed, if he wasn't fully submitted, then he would have struggled. So he's an example to us. And so the question for the hot believer is, how pure and holy can I be so I can enjoy a more intimate walk with God? It's a different motivation. Now, it's not in your notes, but I thought of an aeroplane example, right? You know the law of gravity and the law of aerodynamics? As the aeroplane goes faster, the air goes over the wings and it produces lift and the plane starts to fly. So I'm going to use the aeroplane to illustrate this cold, lukewarm, self-reliant and hot believers where we can be in our walk with God. So the cold, the backslidden believer, they don't want to fly. They've got their plane tied down to the tarmac and they're not going anywhere. I like being on the ground. I don't want to fly. The lukewarm, compromising believer, they're kind of on the runway and off the ground and boom, back on the ground and off the ground and boom, back on the ground, you know. And so they're, they're doing well, they're not doing well. They're doing well, they're not doing well. Now, they're self-reliant. They're not fully submitted. This is like the believer who's pushing the plane. They can't get off the ground. <laughs> okay. Can you imagine that? Pushing the plane, but you can never get enough speed to get off the ground. And they're exhausted. The hot believer, they get in the plane and they take off and they're flying. And so that's kind of the way I see it is that's the four ways to describe where we can be at with our walk with God. And I'm going to coming back to the words from Ezekiel. When a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity or sin, his righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered. So we don't want to be one of those who ends badly. We want to instead hear the words from Jesus, Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. And Matthew twenty-five twenty-one, his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things, I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And a quick summary of what we just talked about here. Not being faithful to deal with and repent of sin as a believer will cost us our eternal reward. We can enjoy sin here or enjoy our reward there, but we can't do both. So make a choice. Enjoy your sin here, enjoy the TV programs, all that kind of stuff, or give it up, die to self, and enjoy reward in heaven but you can't do both. You have to make a choice. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what this is saying. We can fool those around us with our half-hearted repentance, but we can't fool God. We will reap what we sow. So not dealing wholeheartedly with our sin is like being lukewarm. Now, finally, the last point for today is, does going to church or being religious make you a Christian? Hmm. Some people would say no, some people say yes. Here are some reasons why people might say yes, that yeah, I'm a Christian. All right. So they made a profession of faith at a rally or a church. They might go to church. They might consider themselves to be morally good people compared to other people who live much worse lives. They might actually pray, read the Bible regularly, and participate in church ministries and activities. And there's also those people who say, I'm going to heaven because I was baptized as a baby, or I'm a member of such and such a church. Now, in the book of Ezekiel, guess what? It's pretty much like that. 
They worshipped at the temple, they read the scriptures regularly, they prayed, they sang the songs, they participated in the various feasts and other religious activities, they wore the right clothes, spoke the right words, and if you said anything about that beautiful temple of theirs, you'd probably get killed. They were very protective of their religion. They, the Jews, at the time, and even at Jesus' time, they considered themselves to be so much better and more righteous than all the other pagan nations. And their whole culture revolved around the temple and their various services, and they were very religious. And they would say that if you're a Jew, you're going to heaven. If you're not a Jew, you're going to hell. That's how they thought about themselves. They were so self-righteous. But this is how God described them. Isaiah 29, 13. Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honour me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. So it's with their lips and their mouths, but their hearts are far from God. Isaiah 29, 13. And so the Lord says, These people say they are mine. They honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, and the worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. So these people say they are mine, they honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Going into the New Testament, Jesus said about the nation of Israel in his day, Mark 7, 6 and 7, He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, that is someone who says one thing but lives another. An actor. As it is written, this people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching of doctrines, the commandments of men. So it's in vain, it's empty, it's useless. So in the coming weeks, we're going to be dealing with Ezekiel's message to the people, and we're going to see that they are exactly like this. Again, they would say that if you're a Jew, you go to heaven. If you're not, then you go to hell. All those Gentile dogs, as they used to call the Gentiles. And remember, they were faithfully going to the temple, giving money, offering sacrifices, singing, praying, fasting, etc. But their hearts were wicked. So in reality, everything they did for God was because of tradition and ritual. And the rest of their lives was lived for themselves. They worshipped idols, they oppressed people, they committed sexual sins, the murder of infants, and all those kind of things. What made them blind was their spiritual pride. They refused to repent. And it's the same problem in the church today. There's many people, I believe, who say they're Christian, but are actually not Christians. So a person who says they believe in God, but has never repented or turned from sin and turned to God, is a false convert. And in the book of Ezekiel, God keeps saying over and over again, turn from your sin and live. He's looking for repentance. And it's the same in the church today. What did Jesus say to the church of Laodicea? You think you are rich, you have everything you need and lack nothing, and Jesus' divine diagnosis was? You are miserable, poor, wretched, blind, and naked. And he finishes with the word, repent. If they're going to experience a relation with God, they need to repent. 
take conclusion. Believers are only responsible to warn people, not for the people's decision. So we can't help it if those who we share the gospel with choose to hate God. But it's our responsibility to keep on sharing because God loves them and he wants them to have every chance possible to respond and to repent. Believers also have a responsibility to warn other believers. So it's our Christian duty to help each other, and this is what the local body of Christ is for, help each other to stay on the straight note. We need the encouragement. We're not goats, we're sheep. We need to be around other Christians if we're going to survive in this world. And God sends trials to test our faith. They are like an x-ray of the soul. They reveal what's going on inside. Am I relying on God or relying on myself? And how we finish the race is more important than how we started. So a believer can get off track and not finish well, losing their reward. And my prayer is that we will all seek God with our whole heart and finish well so we will receive a full reward. And we need a heavenly perspective to do that. And a great verse is 2 John verse 8. It says, Look to yourselves that we do not lose the things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. That's the Apostle John speaking there. Look to yourselves that we do not lose these things we have worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. False converts. Not everyone who says they were saved are actually saved. And Jesus, you can look this up for yourself, like in Matthew 7, I think. There's a lot of stuff about false converts that Jesus talks about. Those who say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we? You know, prophesy in your name and all that kind of thing. But Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I mean, they never repented. They've never given up their worldly lifestyle. Can't just add God to your life and think you're saved. So if there's no repentance, if there's no relationship, then you're not saved. Their hearts are hardened against God because of sin. They don't want to come to the light. And that's why Jesus was so direct with people. He testified that their works were evil. If you read the Gospels, you'll see him talking to the Pharisees in language which is really quite shocking and direct and brutal. And their response was vehement, aggressive, and, you know, basically they wanted to kill him. How dare you talk to us like that? And Ezekiel's message to the people, repent or die. God wants them to repent because he knows that if they keep going in sin, they will end up in hell. He wants to have a relationship with men. He wants us to reconcile with him. And for us today, guess what? Nothing's changed. We need to be direct. We need to talk about sin. We need to use the law to reveal people's sin so that they can realize that, yeah, I'm a sinner. I need to repent. I'm guilty of breaking God's law. Father, thank you for these amazing words, Lord. There's a lot in them, and a lot of application. The righteous can go astray. And Lord, we do not want to go astray. We want to keep serving you with our whole heart. Lord, it's my prayer that we will all seek you with our whole heart, and we will receive a full reward. Give us a heavenly vision, a heavenly perspective, realizing that this world is temporary and the sin we enjoy is temporary, and it is costing us dearly. So help us, Father, to have that heavenly perspective and to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name, amen.